a man decided to skip church one Sunday and go to the hills to do some bear hunting. As he rounded the corner on a perilous twist of the trail, he and a bear collided, sending him and his rifle tumbling down the mountainside. Luckily for him, he was able to grab his rifle and with just one shot to save himself, take out the bear. The gunshot went off and unfortunately, it was a miss. Now the bear was charging after him and there was no time to reload his gun. So the man began to pray. He said, oh Lord, I'm, I'm sorry for skipping church today to come out here to hunt. Please forgive me and just grant me one wish. Please make a Christian out of that bear coming at me. Please Lord, amen. That very instant, the bear skidded to a halt felt to its knees, clasped its paws together, and began to pray aloud at the man's feet. Dear God, the bear said, bless this food that I'm about to receive. This morning we are talking about another story in the Bible that involves a couple of bears. We've been working our way through our sermon series, Strange Things in the Bible. We've been looking at the strange, weird, odd stories in Scripture that we don't typically look at on Sunday mornings. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. Now the people of the city said to Elisha, The location of the city is good, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw the salt into it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have made this water wholesome. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been wholesome to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on that way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head, go away, bald head. When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and then returned to Samaria. Last week we talked about the story of Elijah who was fed by the ravens. Elijah was a well-known and beloved prophet. He spoke out against idol worship. He stopped the rain from falling. He, he raises a boy back to life. He brings back the rain. He splits the Jordan River, and he even takes on the prophets of Baal in a fiery showdown. He is considered Israel's greatest prophet. And at the end of his life, he is spared from death and is taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah followed by Elisha. So we had Elijah with a J who was followed by Elisha with an S. And Elisha carries on the mission of his mentor. In fact, Elisha even receives a double portion of Elijah's mighty spirit and power. So his ministry, his future looks very promising. And Elisha is a young prophet who instantly receives all of this power, all of this authority. And in his first act as a prophet, Elisha performs a good deed to help a whole community of people. In the city of Jericho, there was polluted, toxic water that was poisoning the land and the people. 
So Elisha sprinkles some salt into the water, and in this amazing prophetic act, the toxic water is transformed into clean, wholesome drinking water. He heals this spring of water and removes all of its impurities. So we see that Elisha is off to a great start. He is following in his mentor Elijah's footsteps, and he is fulfilling his role as God's prophet. His next prophetic act, however, is not quite as virtuous. As he travels to the village of Bethel, a group of small boys come out and they start making fun of his bald head. Get out of here, bald head. Get out of here, baldy. And in response, Elisha curses the boys. And then all of a sudden, two mama bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of the boys. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this is a grisly tale. It's a little bit unbearable, I guess you could say. Uh, but honestly, this is one of the most difficult, challenging, and gruesome stories that we have in the Scriptures. Theologian and scholar Chad Bird offers this reflection on the first time that he encountered the story of Elijah and the bears as a kid in Sunday school. I wouldn't soon forget that Sunday school lesson. The artwork told the whole story. There stood a prophet with a rapidly receding hairline, teeth gritted, his arms waving menacingly. Before him was a group of boys just about old enough for t-ball, as two she-bears gnawed and tore at their limbs. According to my Sunday school teacher, the moral of the Bible story was this, pay honor to your elders, your church leaders, or you might too suffer a similar fate from the God who will not be mocked or let his prophets be mocked. As I reflect on this story some 40-odd years later, it seems I've spent just as much of my life unlearning bad biblical interpretation as I've spent learning good interpretation. This is an incredibly unusual story, and there's a lot going on here. This group of small boys come out of nowhere, and they just start making fun of Elisha's bald head. But most scholars agree that these small boys weren't exactly children. Scholars claim that the phrase small boys isn't the most accurate translation. The Hebrew actual translation, translation phrase should be translated as not small boys, but young men. So these young men come and they start bullying Elisha and making fun of his bald head. And you know, as I was thinking about this, uh, story, I was thinking about how, how bullying can often seem innocent at first. It can seem like it's no big deal, but the effects of bullying can be disastrous. According to a study from 2019, almost one out of every four students, about 25%, report being bullied during the school year. But I love what Mr. Rogers has to say about the issue of bullying. He writes, when I was a kid, I was shy and overweight. I was a perfect target for ridicule. One day, how well I remember that day, and it's more than 60 years ago, we got out of school early, and I started to walk home by myself. I w it wasn't long before I sensed I was being followed by a whole group of boys. As I walked faster, I looked around, and they started to call my name and came closer and closer and get louder and louder. Freddy, hey, fat Freddy, we're going to get you, Freddy. 
I resented those kids for not seeing beyond my fatness or my shyness. And I didn't know that it was all right to resent it, to feel bad about it, even to feel very sad about it. I didn't know it was all right to feel any of those things because the advice I got from the grown-ups was, just let on you don't care, then nobody will bother you. What I actually did was mourn. I cried to myself whenever I was alone. I cried through my fingers as I made songs on the piano. I sought out stories of other people who were poor in spirit, and I felt for them. I started to look beyond the things that people did and said, and little by little, I concluded that Saint Exupery was absolutely right when he wrote The Little Prince. What is essential is invisible to the eyes. So after a lot of sadness, I began a lifelong search for what is essential. What is it about my neighbor that doesn't meet the eye? Let on, you don't care, and nobody will bother you. Those who gave that advice were well-meaning people, but of course I did care, and somehow along the way, I caught the belief that God cared too, that the divine presence cares for those of us who are hurting, and that presence is everywhere. I don't know exactly how this came to me, maybe through one of my teachers or the town librarian, maybe through a musician or minister, definitely across someone holy on holy ground. And of course, it could have come from the grandfather I was named for, Fred McFeely, who used to say to me after we'd had a visit together, Freddie, you made this day a very special day for me. My hunch is that at the beginning of my belief in the caring nature of God came from all those people, all those extraordinary, ordinary people who believed that I was more than I thought I was. All those saints who helped a fat, shy kid to see more clearly what was really essential. Elisha is bullied by this group of young men, and as we all know, words can cause real and lasting damage. These bullies point out Elisha's deepest insecurity. Uh, they catch him when he's alone, when he's, when he's most vulnerable, and Elisha responds like so many others when they are backed into a corner. Elisha hits back. He retaliates. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Well, Elisha, with all of his prophetic power and authority, curses these young boys in the name of the Lord. Notice that it's not God who sends this curse, but it's Elisha doing this in the name of the Lord. This curse came from Elisha. Now, God honors uh, the divine authority that he gives Elisha, but I doubt that God is endorsing his actions here. I wonder how many of us uh, have done wrong under the guise of doing it in the name of the Lord. Throughout our history, how often have we seen Christians bullying and manipulating and controlling and killing others all the while doing it in the so-called name of the Lord? With great power comes great responsibility, and I can't help but think that Elisha is abusing his power. Elisha curses these boys, and two she-bear attack 42 of the young men. That punishment doesn't 
really seem to fit the crime. Elisha's harsh reaction against these young men seems completely out of proportion. Elisha seems unhinged, cruel, petty, vindictive. And throughout the centuries, biblical scholars, however, have made attempts to try to exonerate Elisha. They, they try to minimize and explain away and justify his actions. They say things like, well, the translation is wrong. It's not small children. It's really young men, and that somehow makes it okay. They say that the mocking about his baldness isn't so much about um, him being bald, but they're really attacking his prophetic authority. They say that the boys aren't really even mocking Elisha as much as they're mocking God. Uh, they, they make every excuse and make every justification and make every argument. But no explanation that I have come across is convincing. My interpretation of this scripture is that this is a story of what not to do. This is a cautionary tale of how not to respond in the face of adversity. This is what we should not do. This is how we should not act as God's people. And I, I think that we see a much better example of how we should act and behave through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this encounter when Jesus is rejected in a village in Samaria. They refuse to welcome Jesus into their village. And, and so when the, the disciples, uh, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them, just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and spoke sternly to them, and they went on to another village. Then there's another encounter <clears throat> when Jesus is on his way to the cross. And the Roman soldiers, they strip off his clothes, they beat him, they spit on him, they put this scarlet robe on him, they place a crown of thorns on his head and a staff in his right hand. And they kneel in front of him and they mock him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And Jesus remains silent. And then when Jesus is on the cross, the scribes and the religious leaders mock him, they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. So let him come down from the cross now. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, so let God deliver him now if he wants to. He said, I'm God's son. And again, Jesus remains silent through it all. The only response Jesus offers to those who are killing him is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. If anyone ever had a reason to call down fire from heaven, it was Jesus. If anyone ever had a reason to call two she-bears out of the woods, it was Jesus. If anyone ever had reason to respond with violence and to defend himself with the power and authority of God, it was Jesus. But he doesn't. He remains silent. He remains nailed to the cross. He shows restraint. When we are faced with adversity, when we are bullied, when we are challenged, when we are harmed, we have a choice to make. Are we going to hit back? Are we going to respond by causing more harm? Are we going to get revenge, get even? Because we can certainly justify doing that, can't we? We can come up with all sorts of reasons why it's okay. But there is no life in that. There's no hope in that. There's no Christ in that. Revenge keeps the pain and the suffering in circulation. 
somebody does something wrong and then you do something wrong in response. It escalates, it continues, it doesn't stop, it just circulates. Harm continues to go around. We hold grudges, we give people the cold shoulder when we keep our distance and when we avoid people in an unhealthy way, when we do all of those things, we need to realize that that pain and suffering is still in circulation. The story of the cross is about the end of all that, the end of violence. When Jesus says it is finished, he takes the pain and the violence and the revenge out of the equation. Jesus tells us that power, real power, is given when we show restraint. Real power is given when we deny ourselves. Real power is given when we serve others. Real power is given when we stop the harm and when we seek paths of forgiveness. Let it be so. Amen.